bringing you the latest research, tools, and common sense tips you need to get and stay healthy. It's Talk Healthy Today. Here's Lisa Davis. Bringing you the latest research, tools, and common sense tips you need to get and stay healthy. It's Talk Healthy Today. Here's Lisa Davis. I am such a fan of this wonderful man who's going to join us in a moment. He's been on the show before to talk about the grain brain and some of his other fabulous books. And today we're going to be talking about the grain brain whole life plan. And we've got David Perlmutter, MD. Dr. Perlmutter, welcome back to It's Your Health. Well, I am very delighted to be here. Thank you. It's so nice to have you on. You know, I've cut grains out for a long time. I'll have them like every once in a while, but very, very few and far between. And I I feel the best I've ever felt. I think I look the best I've ever looked. And I just really want to commend you on all the great work you've done. You know, I, I just dove right into this book because I'm such a fan. And I was so interested in learning that you, one of the reasons you did this book is looking at your own health issues going on now that you're in your 60s and some of the hardships you've been through. barely in my 60s, but you're right. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, should I mention that? But he did write it in the book. You know, that's one thing about the new book is it's really very much uh, an event of transparency for me that I'm not on the other side just making recommendations. I'm in the same game on the same playing field as everybody else, you know, and I have my genetic predispositions, which include Alzheimer's disease and my father. And, you know, so I, I want everyone to be very aware of, of the notion that uh, you know, this isn't a question of do as I say, not as I do, that I've got to do the best I can each day. And that's what the new book is all about, what I've learned, how to implement those critically important, scientifically validated premises that we talked about before, lowering your sugar, lowering your carb, eating more fiber, taking care of your gut bacteria, but not just why that's important now, but more importantly, how do you do it? And that is what's so key. I mean, you have information on what time to eat, why you you should skip breakfast a couple times a week, uh, sleep. I mean, there's so many things. So I just mentioned something. Let's talk about that skipping breakfast uh, situation because I tend to have this wonderful drink. I'm a huge fan of JJ Virgin, and she has this great paleo-inspired protein. It's actually not even protein. It's like a complete nutrient shake that actually has um, beef. Uh, grass-fed beef, organic beef peptides or something. I drink that, and then I don't eat for hours, and I feel great. But give us some ideas of what you're thinking, well, and am I on the right track? Okay. And uh, I'd like to identify who it was who came up with the, the, the notion that we have to have three meals a day. I'd, I'd really like to know who that person was. Me too. <laughs> I mean, these are you know the same people who told us that breakfast is the most important meal, and that uh, we've got to feed our brain lots of sugar because that's what the brain uses for fuel. So, you know, if, if you look at the history of humans, we've never, I mean, can you imagine our paleo? You mentioned this is a paleo drink that you're drinking. Yes. Imagine our paleolithic ancestors, you know, stalking a gazelle for, you know, for food, and then suddenly it's lunchtime. They're saying, look, we're going on break because it's time for lunch. We'll get back to that in just a bit. <laughs> you know, we always... Um, in the past 2.4 million years have endured uh, famine and have you know relished the moment of having feasts. So feast and famine has really typified the human diet since the beginning of, of our time on this planet. So we have wonderful mechanisms that have actually not only allowed us to survive, but have allowed us to thrive and in fact really amplified our ability to survive, amplified our health. 
And one of those is having periods of time when we are calorie restricted, otherwise known as fasting. When we deprive our bodies of fuel sources for even as a little as 12 hours, it kicks into activity various gene pathways that are life-sustaining and health-supportive. So it really, you know, this goes back to research done by uh, Dr. Sinclair at, at Harvard showing that we activate uh, gene pathways when we restrict our calories and, our, and we fast that deal with longevity that will possibly extend our lifetimes. I mean, this is something that's highly conserved in all animal species, even worms, when you deprive them of calories, they live longer. We see it in rodents and primates and in humans as well. So I like to tell people that, you know what, if you miss breakfast a couple days of the week, your body's going to be just fine. In fact, it's going to be better. And the way to make that happen is to start powering your body not with carbs, but more with fat and to a lesser degree protein. When we shift over to burning fat as a fuel source, it's more like a, an oil lamp that burns constantly as opposed to carbohydrates, which is really a lot like throwing gasoline on a fire. You know, you get this massive uh, surge of fire, but then there's nothing left. So that's the reason people have such a tough time missing breakfast is because they're getting peaks and valleys in their energy day in and day out. By eating carbohydrates, blood sugar goes up, Insulin pushes that blood sugar way down, and suddenly they're trying to break open a vending machine because they need a sweet roll. Well, when, you, when fat is your fuel source, in other words, when you're more on a paleo kind of diet or more what we call ketotic because that's the fuel that your body's now burning, ketones, then your energy uh, availability is fairly constant, and you don't have peaks and valleys in your day. Yeah, it, it has made a huge difference. You know, I think people already, well, some people already know some of the healthy fats, but why don't you just go through a few of the ones and also how to make it practical? Because then again, in the grain brain whole life plan, you help us do this because people might be saying, well, where am I going to get these healthy fats throughout the day if I'm out and about and have, you know, busy schedules and things like that? Well, what we did uh, in the book was first, we offered up a really, I think, very easy to understand uh, discussion about exactly what you're getting at now. What what differentiates a good versus bad fat, which is really fundamentally important. Favoring the good fats, uh, nuts and seeds, olive oil, grass-fed beef, wild fish, pasture-raised chicken, eggs, of course, uh, coconut oil, uh, extra virgin olive oil. These are all fatty foods. Uh, you know, in the case of the coconut oil and the olive oil, pure fat uh, that you really want to welcome back to your diet. And it's not just your diet, it's the human diet. You know, we've been told uh, over the past three decades or so that uh, dietary fats were, were to be avoided. And, you know, you found things that were labeled low fat or no fat. People, based on what, upon what they were told, bought those things in the grocery store because, you know, under the misunderstanding that those were good things because that's what their doctors told them. And now we've learned just a couple of weeks ago front page New York Times summarizing a study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association that the reason doctors told everybody to go low fat back in the early uh, 1970s, late 1960s was because the, the articles, the studies were so highly influenced, paid off basically by the sugar industry. That was front page New York Times. But unfortunately, that set the stage for doctors buying into this low fat nonsense and that set the stage for a huge increase in type 2 diabetes, obesity, and all of the inflammatory disorders. And by that, I mean 
inflammatory disorders like Alzheimer's, again diabetes, cancer, coronary artery disease. These are inflammatory conditions that are brought on by a diet higher in carbs and lower in fat. So, um, you know, I, I say it's better to light the uh, single candle than to curse the darkness. So let me get away from curse and darkness and light the single <laughs> candle. So we provide recipes for breakfast, lunch, and dinner and snacks, how to do it, how to fast, which is, I think, very important. I mean, frankly, I haven't eaten anything yet. What? And uh, people, uh, This is 11 o'clock in the morning, my time. Uh, so uh, I'm doing just fine, I think. I hope I'm making sense. But, <laughs> you sound great. <laughs> but that said, again, this emulates the connection uh, that a lifestyle choice, in other words, not eating breakfast, has to our genome. And let me just amplify that for just a moment. Every lifestyle choice that we make, be it our food choices, our nutritional supplements, the amount of sleep, exercise, the amount of stress, the amount of compassion, the amount of gratitude, all of these things influence the expression of our DNA. You know, back when I was in medical school, which was certainly a while ago, <laughs> we conceived of our genes, our DNA, as being pretty much, you know, locked up and unavailable. That was pretty much our life code. That was it. It, it was a one-way street. But now we recognize that all of our lifestyle choices from moment to moment influence the expression of our DNA for, the, for better or worse. And, you know, when you realize that 70% of the genes that we have in our bodies that code for things like health and longevity are influenced in terms of their expression by our food choices, for example. It puts a whole new spin on what you're going to have for lunch today. Yes, it really does. And, you know, I think one of the things, though, is people might think, well, if I skip breakfast, then I'm going to eat more later in the day. What do you say to that? Well, they will. Uh, if they are, in fact, used to having a high-carb breakfast. Because, oh, boy, by the time lunchtime comes around, these folks who, you know, start their morning with a 12-ounce glass of OJ and a short stack with some syrup on it, hey, if they miss out on that and their body's expecting that every morning, good luck yeah. making it till noontime. I mean, when noontime comes around, uh, first of all, you're going to overeat. But secondly, which is, I think, far more important, you're going to pound the carbohydrates and you're going to be yo-yoing up and down with respect to your blood sugar, and more importantly, your insulin, which is secreted to control your blood sugar, that goes on for a while, and suddenly your cells decide they're not going to be listening to insulin anymore, and you become what's called insulin resistant. Then your blood sugar goes even higher. Next thing you know, your doctor's writing you a prescription for, for a diabetes medication. That's 27 million Americans uh, with at least twice that amount uh, thought to have what's called pre-diabetes. Why does that matter to me? Number one, diabetes is going to shorten your life in and of itself. But number two, if you become a type 2 diabetic, you have quadrupled your risk for Alzheimer's disease. That's a disease for which there is no treatment. The point I'm making is, by and large, becoming a type 2 diabetic is a choice, and it's based upon your foods that you choose to eat. Uh, and November is National Alzheimer's Awareness Month, and it is really great that what you're doing is able to help people to prevent it. Well, uh, that's my hope, and you know, it, it's certainly more than just the ideas of Dr. Perlmutter being a guest with Lisa Davis today on this program, and I'm, I'm grateful for that. It is what you know our peer-reviewed medical journals are telling us. Just a few months ago, uh, a woman, uh, a Dr. Uh, Melissa. Um, 
uh, uh, I'll think of her, her last name in just a moment, uh, demonstrated uh, in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease, Schilling, I have to remember her name because the Schilling test is a test for B12 deficiency. So Melissa Schilling, oddly enough, um, uh, a business professor at NYU, not even involved in, in anything medical related, but studied Alzheimer's based upon a family experience. And what Melissa Schilling found was that you can reduce your risk for Alzheimer's by 50% if you uh, are careful what you eat and your blood sugar is controlled. Man, oh man. Wow, that's I mean, huge. That, that dovetails with the work of Dr. Deborah Barnes of the University of California, San Fran, uh, in the journal The Lancet, who also showed about a 54% reduction in risk of Alzheimer's based upon modifying various other uh, lifestyle choices like exercise, not smoking, etc. So let's put Alzheimer's in perspective for a moment. Uh, this is a disease affecting 5.4 million Americans, and that number is anticipated to triple uh, by the year 2030. So it's a huge event uh, costing us in dollars about $200 billion a year just to care for Alzheimer's patients. And certainly that doesn't include the emotional cost for uh, family and, and other caregivers for, for these individuals. You know, and um, I've been there. You know, I, I lost my father, a brilliant brain surgeon, mm. uh, to Alzheimer's disease. So believe me, I get it from, you know, my work as a physician, but also as on the personal level as well. And uh, it is, it's a very, very challenging, um, challenging issue. I had a meeting and spent some time, did, actually did a, a, a live re uh, interview with Maria Shriver uh, several months ago, oh, who's really been in the forefront of, of getting the word out that this is a preventable situation and what can people do about it. Matter of fact, uh, a couple of weeks from now, she's moderating a panel that I'll be on in New York. Again, trying to get this message out that, look, we don't have a cure or any meaningful treatment for Alzheimer's today. We do not. Maybe it's 10 years from now, but why not think about what you can do to prevent the disease because the science is rock solid. And the reason people aren't hearing about it is because no one's going to pay for advertising on the evening news uh, for lifestyle changes because nobody can own that. Mm -hmm. It's not profitable. See, that is such a shame. And again, I really commend you on the work you're doing. You know, I, I want to jump back in the book because this is not only going to help with Alzheimer's prevention, but so many other health problems. In the introduction, you have three steps. Step one is edit your diet and pill popping. Step two is add your support strategies. And step three is plan accordingly. Why don't you jump into some of this for us, Dr. Perlmutter? Well, the editing of the diet is certainly taking out and also putting in. Um, I think right off the bat, and we identify later in the book, what needs to come off the shelf. Now, I mean, everybody's aware of my, well, not everybody, but <laughs> many people are aware of the work uh, that I published in Grain Brain. Um, that, you know, that's uh, now in 27 languages. So people understand my position as it relates to gluten. And I think it, it's really uh, an important point uh, to make that just because a product is labeled gluten-free, it's like fat-free. It doesn't mean it's necessarily going to be good for you. Many grocery stores have the gluten-free aisle, and there you will find cook cookies and candies and cakes and flour to make gluten-free this and that, pasta and, and uh, pancakes. The point is, it's beyond the fact that it's gluten-free. That doesn't give you free license. You've got to look at food in terms of the sugar content and the, uh, the carbohydrate co uh, content as well. 
So it's being a little bit more discerning in looking at products and then making decisions. So we go through um, a fairly extensive uh, clean-out of your cupboard of foods that surprise and refrigerator that are may to some people be a bit surprising. For example, um, it's now been demonstrated that artificial sweet, artificially sweetened beverages are associated with a dramatic increased risk of type 2 diabetes, double the risk of diabetes compared to people drinking sugar-sweetened pop and, and soda. I never thought I'd say pop, but I guess it sounds like I'm from the Midwest now, but it works. I, mean, I like I it. I targeted that for that part of your audience that's listening from there. Sure. <laughs> but, I mean, that goes sort of against the grain. I also love saying that. I do, too. <laughs> <laughs> because here you are consuming a beverage that has absolutely no calories, has absolutely no sugar, and in a huge Danish study was demonstrated to dramatically increase the risk for somebody becoming obese, and as I mentioned, doubles the risk of diabetes. It makes no sense. But now we understand why that is the case, and it's because of changes in the gut bacteria. It was just demonstrated in a really powerful study that came from Israeli researchers. So we've got to take care of the gut bacteria. So this story goes well beyond sugar is bad, fiber is good, fat is better if it's the right kind of fat. But it needs to be looked at in terms of how it's affecting the gut bacteria. Because at the end of the day and middle of the day and the beginning of the day, the gut bacteria, your microbiome, are hugely involved in your health and in regulating your metabolism and your hunger and the amount of calories that you extract from food that you eat. So that's the lens that we have to look at at the food that we eat through. Uh, you know, it's been said that Women who are pregnant have to be careful. Now they're eating for two. Well, every person, pregnant or not, men and women, boys and girls, have to consider that they are each eating for 100 trillion. That's the number of organisms that live in the gut. We have to nurture them. They make our brain transmitters. They make many of our vitamins. Uh, they regulate inflammation. They balance our immune systems. They control our mood. So that's, you know, that, that came out of the book that followed Grain Brain called Brain Maker. And again, so what the new book is about is getting all that information in one place now, but more importantly, how do you do it? How do you clean out your cupboard? How do you clean out your refrigerator? Why are we saying don't drink orange juice? And, you know, Lisa, to be clear, I'm doing this interview from Florida, so I better <laughs> lock the door. <laughs> But orange juice, you know, we're all told, look, I'm not, you're not going to drink a can of soda for breakfast. Of course not. That's 36 grams of carbs. No, why would you do that? Well, a 12-ounce glass of orange juice is 36 grams of carbs. That's nine teaspoons of sugar. You know, that's two, two glasses of OJ, and you've had 18 teaspoons of sugar already, and breakfast hasn't even been served. Yeah, so and that's the fructose too, which is worse. If you're gonna, I always say, if you're gonna fructose. eat your fruit, eat it whole. That's right, and you know, fructose comes from fruit, then os, meaning sugar. So that's how you remember that. And there's glucose in that as well. And now, you know, the fructose part of the story is not necessarily going to affect your insulin levels, though the glucose part of OJ will. But fructose. Uh, goes on to lead to uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver. So it changes, you know, your liver and, and does some pretty nasty things. Oh, I shouldn't use the word nasty. I watched the debate last night. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. 
<laughs> That's okay. <laughs> it's still in my mind. Yeah, but anyway, um, fructose, you know, is a real player in terms of changing the gut bacteria and in terms of amping up inflammation in the body. And again, inflammation is the cornerstone of every chronic disease that you don't want to get. You know, we need to make, you and I should get together and make a public service announcement about juice because I swear it's still this thing that moms and dads, but I mostly see moms still giving it to their kids and having, I have a daughter and she's 12 and when she knows not to ask me for juice, so I'm not going to give it to her. And she knows that it's not healthy. And when she tells her friends that they look at her like she has horns. So <laughs> we need to do well, something. Well, you know, the thing about juice is kids love it. Oh, of course. And it's sweet. Why? Because yeah. humans have sweet tooth. Oh, for sure. Uh, we all have a sweet tooth. That's how we survive. Because in our hunter-gatherer days, that told us that two things. It told us that the fruit that we found on the ground, the wild blueberries, were ripe. We like that. And it told us that winter was coming. What do I mean by that? When we, as hunter-gatherers, found the ripened fruit at the uh, end of summer, early fall, we would eat that, eat that sugar, that would stimulate insulin, it would make us fatter. We would gain a layer of fat around the belly and allowed us to survive the winter when food was less available to us. You know, now that mechanism's happening every, happening every day for people, and winter never comes. There's never a time of caloric scarcity, so we just keep laying down the fat and never get to use it. Well, you'll start to use your fat, burn it up, when you send a signal to your body that the hunting is good, meaning that calories are abundant, then your body will shed calories. And the main signal for your body to know that hunting is good is dietary fat. That tells your body no need to hang on to our body fat anymore. Looks like we've got a good source of calories. Let's start losing weight. So. It seems very ironic now that um, you know we're saying the way to lose weight, the way to cater to your brain is to eat more fat and less carbs. But you know that's not necessarily for all of us news that's been uh, published for a long period of time. There have been various studies over the years uh, that have talked about uh, how diets that are uh, that, that favor dietary fat and reduce uh, carbohydrates are really the key to weight loss. You know, it's funny because back in 1999, I had a TV show called Health Power, and I had a nutritionist on who was saying all of this. And I got so many emails and people calling the station and saying what she was saying about the saturated fat not being the enemy, and it's really the refined sugars and the refined flours and things like that, and what's that doing to your triglycerides. And I just remember being like, wow, this is amazing. And I immediately jumped on board. And, and what do you say to the people who are still on the saturated fat is bad bandwagon? How do we switch that paradigm? Well, you know, I, I would ask them, um, where do you suppose you got that information? They would say, well, I got it from my doctor. Where does the doctor get it? From the medical literature. Okay. We've established, therefore, uh, that the medical literature is going to be our gold standard for making uh, judgments in terms of what's good and what's bad. That said, uh, the the current state of peer-reviewed medical literature is such that it's clearly vindicated uh, saturated fat as being having any role to play whatsoever in coronary artery disease. That's where we are now. If we're going to use the medical literature as the peer-reviewed, uh, I mean, as the gold standard, let's let's continue that as our ground rules. So that's what our current literature is telling us. And I would say, listen, um, the what is the most concentrated source of uh, saturated fat. Well, it's coconut oil. That's been 
talked about as being a brain tonic uh, in medical literature uh, that goes back 3,000 years, if you want to include the Vedic texts that talked about it. And hey, 50% of the fat in, in human breast milk is saturated fat. So, you know, as it gets back to weight loss, this isn't necessarily news. I mean, uh, this comparison of high fat versus a high carb diet was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association in March of 2007 and then looked at a head-to-head -head comparison of the Atkins diet versus the uh, Zone diet and the Ornish diet. So you had, you know, across the scale, a diet that's higher in fat, i.e. Atkins, and a diet that castigated fat, which is the Ornish diet, and had people eating lots more carbohydrates. And this study was uh, went on for um, uh, a full year, and what they found was across the scale, the amount of weight loss, uh, the improvement in lipid parameters, markers of inflammation, and even blood, sugar, uh, blood pressure were markedly improved in the higher-fat uh, Atkins-type diet uh, in comparison to the uh, the Ornish diet that really has people removing uh, dietary fat. So uh, I think that, uh, you know, even as we, we look at um, uh, blood sugar, which for me is hugely important, the, the results were really much more uh, compelling for the higher-fat diet. Now, I will say that, uh, I'm, you know, the, the notion of the Atkins diet being really highly focused on eating a lot of meat all day, I think that I don't approve of that as being necessarily the most healthy diet. You know, um, the diet that I talked about in uh, Grain Brain, I talked about on my public television program, uh, really is one where most of the plate is covered with nutrient-dense, colorful uh, vegetables, mostly above-ground vegetables. It's not a meat, you know, all-over-the-plate kind of a thing. Meat is is relegated to now not being the central theme of the meal, but more as a side dish or garnish. So we've got to be careful. And, you know, for those who would say that eating meat has been proven to increase risk of heart disease and colon cancer, I would 100% agree with those notions. Why? Because these studies that you see that really aren't appearing as many uh, these days but that we have seen, they are valid studies because when they ask people, do you eat meat or not, that's as far as that query goes. And that's a real issue because most meat that is available for human consumption here in Western cultures is stuff that you definitely do not want to eat because it's very, very risky for your health. Why? Because it's coming from cattle raised on factory farms. These cattle have been fed grains, which is something a cow would never eat uh, if, it had, it didn't, if it had a choice. Uh, these are animals treated with antibiotics, and the grain uh, has been sprayed with herbicides, uh, so they're changing the, the, the gut bacteria of the, of the cattle as well. That meat, when you analyze it, is higher in the pro-inflammatory omega-6 acids and lower in the life-sustaining omega-3s in comparison to grass-fed beef. So that's the problem with studies who say meat is bad. Well, it's not good enough these days to say meat is bad because we have to differentiate between, you know, the meat that you get at a fast food place or in your typical supermarket versus grass-fed beef. It's a major difference. It's like saying, you know, we're going to do a study on alcohol consumption, but there's not going to be any delineation between, you know, pounding, a, you know, several shots of scotch each day versus having a glass of Merlot. 
And there are health benefits of a glass of Merlot and not so much on the scotch. But that's why those, those studies need to be refined. And I, I just want to mention uh, for your listeners, uh, I just mentioned the, the, the public television program that it did um, called uh, Brain Change. Um, we're actually giving that out now as a, a, a free download to people oh, wonderful. When, they, when they buy the, the new book. They just have to, once they buy uh, the Grain Brain Whole Life Plan, all you have to do is then go um, to my website, which is drperlmutter.com, drperlmutter.com, and there's a link there that allows people to, you know, they have to, they, they send in their proof of purchase on their book, and then we'll send them a, a link to uh, the public television program. Oh, that is fantastic. You know, I'm so glad you brought up the grass-fed because I only buy grass-fed organic meat and I won't eat meat out in restaurants and I don't eat a ton of it, but I definitely, you know, one of my favorite meals, and I always say this, is to have a little grass-fed beef, a yam, a huge salad or a huge amount of, like, colorful vegetables and some avocado. And I think that's a pretty darn good meal. I, I think Maybe not the yam. Especially. No, I think this sounds <laughs> a terrific. small yam, half um, a yam. <laughs> I, I would eat the skin of the yam if yes. I were you and would uh, probably not overcook it. Uh, that's great. I mean, uh, right now, um, when I'm alone at home, uh, my wife went up to New York ahead of time because we have some, our daughters doing something up there. So when I'm by myself, you know, it, my um, I don't spend a lot of time in the kitchen. What I get away with is raw kale, a lot of raw kale with some sardines, uh, lots and lots of extra virgin olive oil, a little bit of sea salt, and with each that meal probably good. half an avocado. Uh, and I know that sounds strict, but... When, no, when sounds I have a great. lot of time, I like being strict <laughs> with myself and then really hitting the exercise hard. And uh, again, um, it isn't going to hurt people. It's going to do them good to start cutting down significantly, you know, on their caloric consumption. Understanding that, you know, when you're using a lot of olive oil, at least if you're concerned about not getting enough calories, fat gives you twice the calories of carbohydrates. But we've got to stop counting calories. Oh, Reducing your calories is not the fundamental goal if you're trying to lose weight. The way to lose weight is to stop the insulin signaling, which is the signal that winter's coming, and the way to stop the insulin signaling is to stop the sugars and carbs. You are so right. If people are just joining us, I'm speaking with a fantastic David Perlmutter, MD. Dr. Perlmutter, I'm going to keep you a bit longer because I asked ahead of time and you still have time and there's just so, so much. I want to go into step two, add your support strategies. What are some of those supports? Well, I think the biggest support strategy is to work with other people, is to share things with other people, let others know what you're doing, and hopefully these are people that are going to be giving you encouragement along the way. Now, beyond encouragement, if other people can participate, you know, a spouse, a friend, a family member, uh, along with you so that you can both share, or more than both, uh, share in the gains that you make, I think that's really very, very important. You know, there's a huge health ben benefit to social connectedness. This is one of the main factors that I think is so underrated, but was one of the very powerful parameters looked at in what are called the blue zones, where various uh, peoples in various uh, areas of, of the globe, pockets, uh, had significant reduction in, in risk for uh, uh, illnesses and extension of lifespan. Yes, diet was important. Yes, physical activity is hugely important. But social connectedness remains, you know, absolutely on that list. And and this isn't virtual social connectedness, although if that's the best you can do, there's some benefit to that as well. We're looking at, you know, the face-to-face, the, the -face spending time with people type of uh, connectedness that has such what we call salubrious 
uh, benefit, meaning health providing benefit uh, for people. So that's what that support part is all about. Oh, I like that. And it really does make a difference because sometimes people, I don't think they're trying to sabotage you or maybe subconsciously they are because they don't want to make changes in their lives and their health, but they'll be like, oh, is that all you're going to eat? Or what do you, oh, come on, you're taking this too seriously. Or, how do you respond to that? Because oh, yeah. people, people do that to me. They don't want you to drop out of the club. <laughs> yeah. uh, they definitely don't want you to drop out of the club because it's, then it's a threat to them. Uh, so if you suddenly say, you know, I don't really think I'm going to have the dessert today, uh, but it's it's Thanksgiving, it's your birthday, you know, yeah. your cells of your body and your gut bacteria, they don't really necessarily know that today is your birthday or Thanksgiving. <laughs> They're going along and suddenly get bombarded by artificial flavors and uh, colors and sugar, and they respond negatively to that. So, you know, uh, I, I'm not going to say that we don't all have a moment, but generally you've got to recognize that you're going to get a lot of negative peer pressure to stay part of the group and uh, I, I tell people that you know you can see changes uh, in uh, on the program that we're describing in as little as three days and the verification for that statement comes from a dr. Lawrence David at Harvard who actually measured dramatic changes in human gut bacteria three days into a dietary change. So we know that it sets the stage for, uh, for very, very big changes. And, and again, I'd like to get back to the fact that this book is written with me on the same side, in the same peer group as the reader, mm -hmm. um, being that a socially connected individual. I'm as socially connected, at least uh, through social media, uh, as I can be with all of our readers. I mean, you know, we have a bunch of people that follow us, and, I, and I'm grateful for that because that's very validating, saying, look, we think this information is important. People post on our websites and Facebook saying, oh, I lost weight, my allergies are better, my joints don't hurt. And, you know, there are plenty of criticisms as, as well, but by and large, people are getting phenomenal results. And, you know, for a physician, that, that's very, very encouraging. It means we're on to something here. Oh, so, completely. boy, oh, boy, I'm going to... I'm gonna, continue, uh, you know, making this information very, very available to people. You know, Dr. Perlmutter, I want to just focus on the last thing, uh, step three, plan accordingly. And then you're always welcome to come back. I love chatting sure, sure. with you. It's fabulous. All right. So we talked about this and that's what's so great about the book is helping us plan. And I think, you know, it, it's very, very important that people do plan, uh, that you don't go moment to moment, that you take a step back, you look at the broad strokes you shop accordingly uh, based upon now what your new paradigm is in terms of foods that are good for you versus those that are not. You plan that you may be hungry during the day, for example, when you are transitioning to this new diet. And as such, we take that into consideration. And I have a whole section on what to do if you're getting ready to crash and burn, how to, how to get through that. Because once you've done this, uh, even just for a few days, it gets easier and easier. And after a couple of weeks, when you've lost weight and you look better and people are complimenting you, those same people who wanted you not to change your diet <laughs> and are now jealous as the day is long, uh, you know, how to, how to respond to that and how to deal with that. But it's really getting through the early part of the program uh, that needs encouragement from me. And that's what the planning is all about. Look, there are going to be obstacles. It's not only the people around you, uh, but cravings will happen and uh, you know why do we allow 
a couple of squares of chocolate, 85% or, or, or better, because it's actually low in sugar, has polyphenols, has some good fat in it, and you feel like you're giving yourself a treat, and it can stem the tide. So that's what the planning part is all about. Uh, you know, and that section uh, is written uh, because I know um, it's going to be a challenge for people, and I wanted to be very upfront about that. Look, uh, you may have uh, significant uh, doubt in faith uh, early on, and here's why, A, and B, here's what to do about it. So that's what the planning section's all about. Plan for the fact that this is going to be a revolution for your body in a very, very positive way. You know, you mentioned that 85% chocolate. I love green and black. They have a great 85%. I eat it all the time. I eat that every day. Now, not a whole bar. I have a few squares. But if I don't, then I feel I'm going to go nuts. So for me, it really... Uh, I, I like that. Go nuts. <laughs> go nuts. That's what we're looking for. Dr. Perlmutter, you are fantastic. The book is The Grain Brain Whole Life Plan. Tell us all the ways we can find you on social media. I would say uh, my website is drperlmutter.com, drperlmutter.com. That's where that um, our free download is located for uh, the uh, public television program. Um, I do a lot on Facebook, and so my Facebook is David Perlmutter, MD. I actually do a lot of uh, live um, broadcasts, uh, Facebook mentions, and they are so much fun. Because oh, good. Once it's up for about maybe a minute and a half, two minutes, then questions start coming in, and I love the interaction with the live questions there. And uh, it's just, you know, really what I enjoy doing more than almost anything. So those are my two areas. Like, you know, I do Instagram and Twitter and all that. So uh, David Perlmutter, at David Perlmutter is Twitter. But I'd say the main place for people to go uh, in terms of really having what I think is a robust resource for information with huge amounts of scientific literature available to you, searchable site, uh, is my website, which is drdrperlmutter.com. No period after the DR. Fantastic. And I want to spell that out, D-R-P-E-R-L-M-U-T-T-E-R.com. Dr. Perlmutter, come back soon. We always have such a great time. I would be absolutely delighted. I want to thank everyone for listening. Check us out at Talk Healthy, the number two day on Twitter and Snapchat. Talk Healthy Today podcast on Facebook. Check me out, Health Media Gal 1. Keep listening, stay well, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes. Thanks. Have a great day.